0: visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlaps. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. To begin, I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Pacific Defense. Pacific Defense rapidly delivers military electromagnetic spectrum technology solutions to the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and their industry partners. Learn more at pacific-defense.com. Today, we're at an event for the local chapter of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum with a panel discussion on the role of EMS superiority and innovation. Let's listen in. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural event at the Association of Old
1: Crows new facility, Thank you so much for hosting the Deaf DC Agora this evening. For those of you who are not familiar with Deaf, we are the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, and our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower people across the defense community to do great work for our nation. Sometimes that's things from helping to feed us with a, a startup farm out in Tyson's Corner. Sometimes that might be doing great things on a, a very technical national security front. But we have a diverse group of people here today. And we know that we can't solve all these problems single-handedly. None of us can. It takes a a large group of individuals with a plethora of ideas. Sometimes we can agree to disagree, and sometimes we're going to disagree to disagree. But either way, we're going to make it through it, and we're going to have a good conversation this evening about the electromagnetic spectrum. It is a very important domain for all of our warfighting activities. I'm really honored that the Association of Old Crows uh, hosted us here in their facility tonight. This idea was born from Scott Oliver here, AKA Sherm from the RVJ Institute. And I want to thank our sponsors, Pacific Defense, as well as Cyber Safari for providing the food, beverages, the podcast recording, everything that's going on here this evening. So uh, Vox Topico's in the back, give me the thumbs up saying, yes, if we can get a plug too, that's awesome because they do great production work out there and their podcasts get turned around in record time. So really appreciate the work you guys are doing. So this evening, we have up here on stage, Courtney Barno. She's the co-director of our DC Agora. She's uh, very intelligent and asks way harder-hitting questions than I do, as well as Scott Oliver, Ken Miller from AOC, and Pat Flood, representing national security, policy advice, and many, many other things as well. Mm So I'll let them all give introductions of themselves in further detail. So without further ado, I'm going to get off the stage.
2: Thank you, Dan. So I'm not going to do introductions because this is certainly not about me this evening. So I'd love to turn it over to Scott Sherm next to me and have him do a quick introduction. And then we can just go down the line here and do Ken and Pat after you, if that's okay.
3: Yeah, sounds good. Well, this is really fun. Uh, this was a, an idea that we had to do this, Dan and I, and there's a lot of good friends that are in the room here today. And I know it's going to go coast to coast because we're going to put this on two different websites and host it on the deaf website and also on the AOC website. So. I was just actually having a conversation about the importance of awareness. We're going to talk about something that's invisible. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't smell it. But it's everywhere we go. And all of our warfighting operations, all of our technology that we have today that's wireless, GPS to your cell phone, to your Wi-Fi, to the F-18 that we're flying with the radar and the comm suite, essentially everybody except for rucksacks and bayonets. you know They don't depend on the electromagnetic spectrum. But almost everything else does, and so it's really, really challenging because it's invisible, and it's really important we bring awareness to this issue. A little bit about myself: I just retired from uh, 22 years of active service in the Navy. I flew the EA-18G Growler. I also uh, most recently stood up the Secretary of Defense's Electromagnetic Spectrum Operations Cross Functional Team. Uh, we started that back in April of 2019, and we've we published a strategy. That was tasked uh, by Congress that we uh, update the strategy. And uh, most recently, the team is in the final stages of an implementation plan for that strategy. That is a really big deal because uh, we've had a lot of good strategies in the past, but it's finally going to be implemented. They just met with the Secretary of Defense, Mr. Austin, and we expect a signature very soon. So the thesis for this discussion is that it's going to take a holistic approach to solve this problem. So it can't be done by industry. It can't be done by the government or the military. It can't be done by academia. It has to be a holistic approach, a united approach between government, academia, and industry to to solve this problem. What is is the problem exactly? The problem is is that uh, nearly every single one of our capabilities depends on the electromagnetic spectrum, and those dependencies are at risk. And so uh, we have to take steps to make sure that our our joint force is prepared to operate in a contested, congested, and constrained electromagnetic environment. So that's why it's so important to bring awareness to this. In my day job, I work for uh, Expression Networks. Uh, It's a full stack software development firm. They're uh, headquartered here in DC. We do uh, EMS uh, situational awareness type software, among other things. But in my volunteer time, I'm helping start up a not for profit 501c3 institute an academic institute focused on the electromagnetic spectrum and operations in the electromagnetic spectrum and the problem we're trying to solve is today there's a lot of really wonderful places you can turn if you want to get research and analysis and they're very commonly sought after you know there's there's fantastic ffrdcs there's think tanks it's actually quite a big industry here in washington dc But there is no place that you can turn for expertise in the electromagnetic spectrum. But yet all of our capabilities depend on it. And so it's very inefficient, uh, the current state of affairs, because you go to one of these fine institutions and you ask them a very challenging question that's going to take research and analysis. And the first thing they have to do is they have to figure out who the experts are. And that usually takes a few months to identify all the right experts to come together And then uh, the next thing they have to do is they have to find out what the state of the art is. What is the latest research that's been done on this topic? And so that's just wasting a lot of time. And then by the time they start to do analysis and research and to produce material to inform the decision, that material is delivered to the customer, a decision is made. And oftentimes that report is put into a filing cabinet and it's not part of our institutional knowledge. And so that's what this institute is trying to do. It's the Reginald Victor Jones Institute. We're standing up an institute to be the go-to authority to ask hard questions and to consolidate research and to have a cadre of experts on hand that can answer tough questions at a moment's notice. I've been talking for a while now, but a good example I like to use is there's been some recent directed energy here in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure if anybody's paying attention to that. Probably should be, right? But there's something going on near Pennsylvania Avenue. It's been talked about in the news. And so we need experts to be able to weigh in on this and provide expert opinion and analysis to this pretty big happen here in our hometown. Just a a couple of weeks ago, just an example, I was speaking to one of the world-renowned experts on directed energy, and uh, and he's very excited and he wants to be a part of the Institute. And so that's kind of where we're headed is we want to have these experts on hand to answer hard questions and we want to consolidate research in order to advance the art and science of electromagnetic spectrum operations. It's exciting. I put a couple plugs in because we are looking for funding. It's actually being funded out of the generosity of uh, Stephen Melinda Tarangio. We have things we want to do, and it's not possible without some sponsorship and uh, corporate investment. You know, after serving in the military, I know nothing about fundraising. Uh, but I'm beginning to learn a lot about it. So please tell your friends, your family members. If anybody is independently wealthy, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. So uh, (laughs) anyways, that's what I'm up to. I think this is an interesting panel because when I think about Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, we immediately think about industry. What is industry doing? And the Association of Old Crows is the industry association. Ken Miller is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for years. And one of the questions (laughs) I wanted to ask uh, Ken was, you know what are those barriers to innovation for young startups? You know, there's one here in the room right now. Cyber Safari is a young startup that's trying to get in on this, and it's 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 challenging. My heart kind of goes out to young startups who are trying to get started in this realm because it's it's complicated. And so I thought that that's something that Ken could bring from the Association of Old Crows. So there's Ken.
0: Well, thank you. It's it's great to be here, and and I've, I want to welcome everyone to the Association of Old Crows new office building here. It is our inaugural event, so it's it's been, it's great to have everyone out here. So as Sherb said, I'm the uh, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our association, we're a global association of professionals engaged in advancing electromagnetic spectrum operations. Uh, So we represent industry, we represent the warfighter, both here in the U.S. around the world. We have chapters all over the globe. So our events and our activities are all geared to kind of raising that awareness. My job is to basically, from the staff side, be the primary interface with all of our stakeholders. One of the things that I do, and I just recently started a few months ago, we started two new podcasts, one called From the Crow's Nest, which really deals with kind of hot issues of the day where we talk to experts and kind of start to deep dive into some of this discussion. And then the other one, if you're interested in electronic warfare, we have a history of crows and we are tracing the history going all the way back to the early thinkers of electromagnetic energy. And the next episode is going to be on radar. We're going to start tracing that history all the way up through to current We uh, talk with experts and, and, and so forth and bring them in to interview for that. With those podcasts over the last few months, I've had a great opportunity to engage a lot of leaders and talk about some of the key issues that are facing industry, facing military in terms of barriers for startups. I had the privilege of interviewing Michael Madrid for one of our podcast episodes a few weeks ago. So if you're looking for a good podcast, please download that episode. We touch on a lot of those issues of some of the challenges facing these startups. So in... Thinking about what I wanted to share today, I could go on and on with a number of different things, but I had basically four issues. And I'm just going to really quickly highlight them. And then if they're of interest to you, ask questions and we can talk more about it. The first one is, from a market perspective, there is tremendous structural change happening in the market right now. When you look back 20 years ago, you basically had this kind of vertical and horizontal arrangement of the market from your prime integrators to your system, houses, subsystems, components. Across horizontally, you had your EW market, you had your SIGINT market, you had your radar market, and so forth. And sometimes, you know, it was a little bit hard to always define those markets exactly, but we had an idea. And if you looked at the market for the EW market, you'd get estimates around 18 billion globally. Sometimes it went up to 30, just depending on how you move those lines a little. Bit. Recently, though, as technology is rapidly advancing, as said, says, touching everything we do, it's changing industry dramatically day in and day out. And so what we're seeing now is those kind of market stovepipes kind of coming together. And and a lot of that's under this idea of multifunction systems. With these multifunction systems, no longer do you have an EW box. That EW box is now just a box that does what you needed to do when you needed to do it. And a key part of that is going into open systems architecture and, and standards. You have multifunction kind of blending these markets together. And then from really the bottom up, you're getting a lot more influence and a lot more shaping of the market from component manufacturers, subsystems on up, that, that upward pressure. And so you're getting a much more blurred vision of, from our perspective, would be the EW market, which is basically going away. You just have an electromagnetic spectrum operations. You, I don't know what we call the market. Maybe it's, a, a, it's defense electronics which is a little bit broader. So we're still, as an association, started trying to figure this out. What is our market? Because it's changing so dramatically. So how does industry respond to that? We can talk a little bit more specifics. I mentioned the role of open systems architecture. I just recorded a podcast episode yesterday on that topic. That'll be coming out in a few weeks. Uh, There's two issues. So there's a a sensor open systems architecture consortium that's coming out with hardware standards for DoD 1.0 in a few weeks. There's also software standards across the services, so you have service standards, you have DoD standards. How are these standards going to fit together? And then a key thing for industry is how do they conform to those standards? It's great to say we're going to have one standard, but industry has to build to that standard and they have to get certified to that standard and they have to hold that certification to that standard as that technology develops. And that's going to it's going to be a challenge for some companies, particularly when we look at the larger traditional systems houses on down to the small business. Like how do they come together? whether it's through a consortium, whether it's through some other mechanism. How do they engage the market? How do they conform to the standards? How do they stay up to speed on what those standards are to the extent that they're evolving? Standards are great, but when you're facing a threat that's constantly changing, I can guarantee you standards are going to be constantly changing. And if standards are changing, then are they standards? So like, I think that this is going to be an issue that we're going to have to continue to work on a little bit more going forward. You mentioned the importance of EMS, and I'll pass to Pat in a second here. But I wanted to mention one thing about another topic that we've been covering is JADC2. Great vision from the DoD, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Joint All Domain Command and Control vision for for our forces, it's essentially a single network of sensors that cross service, cross domain, cross mission that can share information, that can gather, collect, distribute, manage, store, you name it. That 100% depends upon. EMS superiority. If you do not have an advantage in the EMS, when you need it, for the duration you need it, where you need it, you will fail in that mission. It is the backbone, full stop, in, in my view. And so it's going to be a real challenge, I think, for DOD. I don't necessarily, at this point, see quite the embrace of EMS superiority from the leadership. When the discussion shifts to do I'd like to see more of it. I think it's getting there. But I think that from an industry perspective, as well as Congress, we need to be talking about the role that EMS superiority plays in this. Because if you look at other organizing constructs from DOD over the last 20, 30 years, they've all relied on the EMS. But they really have stopped short of placing the EMS at the center of why they need it to succeed. And I think that that needs to happen here for JADC, too. So hopefully that'll be another topic that comes up. And for to pass the mic to Pat, what I will say is, on all these issues, Congress has a tremendously important role to play from the accountability perspective, from the oversight perspective, and from the funding perspective. Because if you're talking about open systems architecture, if you're talking about entry for small businesses, you need incentives that comes in the form of structural change through policy and legislation. That's part money that comes from Congress. They have a tremendous role to play. So I will pass that to Pat and just (laughs) say, hey, we need Congress to play an important role in this because if Congress is silent, then I think a lot of these other things that need to happen will eventually be silenced. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs, Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems' research and development and production organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background?
4: Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, We also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter.
0: This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crows Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field?
4: In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today, where the physics meets the real world.
0: This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach
4: out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work, classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com Fast
0: Labs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show.
5: Wow. Um, I he don't know how to, how to continue on right. and top that. Uh, I think we're wrapped. I think that's pretty good. So no, I just had like seven points I wanted to bring up, but I'm in detail. No, hi, everybody, I'm Pat, and I want to thank everybody here, especially Ken and Cherm. Sharing the stage with uh, these two uh, gentlemen is quite an honor. We've been engaged in this struggle, I think, this insurgency, this virtuous insurgency, I think, to use the tagline mm-hmm. from deaf, I think, um, for about I don't know three plus years working in our various silos, but trying to pursue a common goal. Uh, So I started my career in the military in the Air Force, served about 30 years. And then um, when I retired, I got a phone call from another Air Force officer I served a, a long time with who retired as a one star who had just recently been elected to Congress. And so this individual was a career electronic warfare officer, cared very much about where we were headed with respect to our dominance, our ability to dominate the spectrum. Was shortly named to the Armed Services Committee, and I've been with him working his portfolio on defense for a long time. But a major emphasis area for us has been the EMS. And it was very clear in his mind and in mine that work needed to be done in this. Uh, but you know, in life, the, sometimes the most important things in the world are not in your inbox. Nobody's telling you to do this. We recognized that it needed to be done, and we were fortunate enough to seek out partners inside and outside of government, who cared in much the same way, it's often said that a fish can't see water. So think about that for a second. When you're immersed in the environment, you don't really necessarily take notice of it. You can't really define it. And in a way, DOD's reliance on EMS is, is similar. Okay, So then the question is, what does it take for an organization to adapt itself? And what capacity does an organization have to adapt itself when they're in it? A million things in the inbox that have to be dealt with every day. And I think over the last you know, three decades, this particular part of this was not receiving the attention it needed to. Meanwhile, our dependency on it was growing exponentially and our vulnerabilities were growing even more uh, in a nonlinear way. So we set to work to help enable this transformation. And I think we've had some success so far. There's a lot more to go and uh, can talk ad nauseum about the process and the politics. and what we can expect here moving forward, I think I'll save some of the, uh, the details for later. But it's great to be here
0: for the for those. And in, in, could you talk a little bit about the EW working? Because I think that that's an important part.
5: Of- oh, sure, sure. Just to set the stage, and and this is something that Ken's been pretty close to for years. In fact, I think he actually started it. But what makes this topic so difficult from a public policy perspective, and certainly from a defense perspective on the on the committees? All right. So now, legislative branch jurisdictional oversight of the defense enterprise, it touches everything, which means everybody cares about it. Everybody, in a sense, is responsible for it, which is the kiss of death for anything useful coming out of that, because nobody's really in charge, right? On the committees, of, in the, the Senate, I work in the House, uh, Senate's very structured in very, very much the same way, jurisdictionally. This is slippery. It falls through the cracks a lot, just like it does in DOD, in the Pentagon. What was recognized that in order to keep the fires burning and to keep interest alive, there had to be a coalition of the willing organized, right? So a few members and some staffers who actually cared and understood what was at stake here. An organization, you see this a lot, uh, they're called congressional member organizations, also sometimes referred to as caucuses. But they're just collections of people who care about an issue, who want to band together to try to make progress. There's a spectrum of them. Some are highly effective, very large, actually resourced pretty well. Others are there in name only. A point of pride for the electromagnetic warfare working group is that's not called a caucus. It's actually called a working group because the members actually take pride in delivering things, teeing language up for enactment into law when required, providing actual oversight. So we try to stay within that lane. The four members currently, the four co-chairs, two Republicans, two Democrats, are my boss, Representative Don Bacon, joined on the Republican side by Representative Austin Scott of Georgia, Then on the Democrat side, you have Representative Jim Langevin of Rhode Island, and then Representative Rick Larson of of Washington. And I think the four have proven that they just care about this stuff. And so they keep coming back for more. And the staffs that are part of this are pretty united and are determined not to let the lights go out on this one, to keep driving it. The unfortunate part is that we learn we have to keep driving it because just letting nothing happens on its own. Uh, The bureaucratic inertia, not only in... DOD, but also in the House and, and the Senate will, will take over. So you got to care. So that's the history. And the EWWG is uh, something that Ken helped start it when he was on the Hill,
2: I'll jump in and ask a question here. I think to kind of bisect the conversation, if we are to maintain and advance our superiority in the electromagnetic spectrum, there's kind of two elements that I've heard here that we need, right? We need a governance structure. Everybody loves that, that word, right? That is effective. And give someone, some entity ownership of this to advance it, right? And we also need innovation. Innovation is critical to, to advancing any capability that we have. So I guess to start with the innovation side, what are the appropriate steps to take to ensure that industry is leading and driving innovation in this area? We have you know, increased research and development budgets that have been proposed coming down the pipe especially in non-defense agencies? So is there work that can be done there? And how do we engage industry on the defense side? Are you seeing the momentum you'd like to see? And I think, you know, Pat, this is a great way to engage you from the the Hill perspective, but also Sherm, Ken, from your perspective, you know, are we seeing the prioritization we want to see in the defense budget on this going forward?
5: Well, (laughs) I'll kick it off and I'll say it's unclear. Okay, and here's a bit of the problem is the defense budget that term, the, the defense budget, that comes across Congress is about four to six thousand pages in excruciating detail from each of the military services, uh, the reserve components, as well as the, uh, as the, you know, the, the office of secretary of defense and everything in between. It's a lot of stuff, a lot of information contained in there. Might be in the aggregates some real wisdom and genius about what the request is. Give us this money, and we will do amazing things with it. But the problem is, who in the world can tell? You know, we don't have an AI machine reader for this. Maybe we need one. One of the constant criticisms of is that we need a Rosetta Stone to break this out. Tell us how all of this adds up into something virtuous and powerful and meaningful. So we don't know. Now, so there's a lot of bets in that budget. Some of them are undoubtedly going to be amazing and great. Many will not. And what's the cost of the ones that don't pay off in terms of time, if not the money itself? So it's unclear right now.
3: So you're teeing me up because this is something I'm kind of passionate about. And that is, I agree that you need to understand the budget, but I think that we need to take a different view of this. We need to first understand what are our priorities and what are our capabilities and where do we have gaps? And then where are we going to prioritize research and development? Where are we going to prioritize sustainment on and on? Understanding the budget is important, but I would offer that now that I'm out of uniform, I can say this. I think Congress should pressure the department to tell them what is important. And then after you know what's important, then you can search through the document and say, why aren't you funding the top three things you told us was important? I I want
0: to build on that a little bit because I agree with you that we have to prioritize. One of the challenges, we always talk about kind of raising awareness with the leaders in DOD. is how difficult it is. And it is. In some cases, almost the easiest thing to do because it's very easy to go in theory to someone and say, hey, we have a problem. But when you get into the actual system development, oftentimes that system is well past the point where you can insert a solution. And so even if you change the priority, you still have a problem with making sure that that gets down at the earliest stages of development. And from an EW perspective, we don't own these systems. We don't manage them. You know, these are, you know, we might find a vulnerability in a particular radar system or a plane or a ship or something, but we don't own that program. So we can talk about those vulnerabilities and we can say, hey, you need to have this a priority. But at the end of the day, we have to get in at the earliest stages. And that's where I think a lot of going to the innovation question is we have to make sure that we're focusing a lot of our efforts on getting innovators to get on the same page about the importance of. EMS, not just from the attack standpoint, but particularly, and maybe arguably most important from the electronic protection side of the equation, because we have to design systems that can survive. And that comes down to EP. Too often, we understand the vulnerabilities too late. And so that's how I would like to kind of build on not just priority, but also getting in early.
5: This is a great conversation because I think it is pretty fundamental. Begin with the end in mind, right? So what's, what's the end, right? What are you trying to do? Why are you trying to do it? Once upon a time in our acquisition process, we would actually try to inform our investment decisions based on, you know, some level of a model, right? In order to achieve our security objectives in a part of the world against a certain adversary, we would basically kind of try to game out how each adversary would act in a certain set of circumstances with a certain set of capabilities and military objectives. And we have capabilities that do that. And those actually do inform force structure decisions and capability decisions. It's somewhat linear process in a way, and it's not perfect, but it is useful. And that does help us understand how many brigade combat teams do we need to buy and how many carrier strike groups. What is interesting about the spectrum is that we really don't have an ability to do that beyond adversary blue versus red, box versus box. Hey, I have an aircraft that's trying to do this mission, and I know the adversary has a threat system out there, so I need to have a better box than he does. And I'm going to do that. But yet... Across a broader arrangement of capabilities, how have we built the system that can model this? Our moves across all services versus the adversary's capabilities. And what was a little shocking was that we don't have that. You know, in fairness, it's hard. This requires a level of computational power and a structure that is highly complex. But yet, what's really mystifying for a lot of us is that we're still asking to buy things when we don't know if this is all gonna work together. you know. Remember, these budget requests come up basically through service channels, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Space Force. They have to operate in an environment that doesn't really care what uniform you are. The spectrum doesn't really care if it's blue or red or gray or something else. So before we can make good requests and identify those gaps, we gotta understand, we gotta model this somehow. And so that's been one of the things Congress has been pushing on. Now it's not easy, but until we get that, then do we even know like what those priorities are? You know, Because in theory, those gaps would be illuminated at some point in time. And then you could determine and inform your investment requests and your decisions and your R&D needs from that.
2: I love this because I think what we're illuminating here is this exact problem with this linear system, right? If the capability that's going to give you the edge is something completely orthogonal to what you think it's going to be, that process isn't going to get you what you need, right? So you're going to need to make near-term bets and longer-term bets over different horizons in different areas to see what yields the capability edge, right? But I wanted to come back to something, you know, that Ken mentioned about EP. And this kind of brings me to JCDS and the JROC, everybody's favorite, right? I want to push on this for a minute and say, a lot of uh, your opening remarks for me sounded a lot like what the department has gone through in the past five years with data, right? We have this cross-cutting Enabler, we didn't really see it. We didn't prioritize it. Now we're realizing it is the fuel that's going to give us the advantage, or it's going to lose the next conflict for us, right? And so we we're beginning to prioritize it. We have a joint war fighting concept that says this is primacy for us. We're going to go after this. The Joint Staff has put out guidance on this. You know what can be learned there for EMS? Then moving into maybe the implementation plan. You know, are we seeing things in the implementation plan that mirrored some of the goodness that we've seen in the turn towards the data strategy in the past few years?
0: I'll save the I plan for sure. sure. But um, <laughs> you know, going to the EP now, I will say that when we get to lessons learned, I will say this, we learn lessons through failure. It's a bad way to learn lessons. But we've always held such an advantage over our opponents or, or over our adversaries that we've been able to figure it out and put out a solution. So we do need to learn lessons from other communities, AI, that have gone about and figured out how to come up with a solution before there's an actual problem. Because we will not be able to have that time that, you know, talking certain adversaries you're talking a matter of days, max, to figure out a solution to a vulnerability. So I don't know what changes have to be made to that process, but we do have to learn from other communities who have figured it out, particularly in the data AI areas, because they don't have quite the history that we have, but we're used to learning from failure and we have to kind of break that, that process. Mm-hmm. Up.
3: An important string I want to pull there is a realistic electromagnetic operating environment that we can simulate in and train in, it doesn't exist. And so if we had a realistic electromagnetic operating environment that we could simulate, we could understand what our capabilities are and what our vulnerabilities are and what opportunities we have, because this is an opportunity space. I really appreciated the fact that you mentioned that, Pat. So connected to a realistic environment, I think AI and data and ML might actually be kind of suffering almost the same problem because they don't know what it's going to be like when we begin algorithmic warfare. They don't understand, like we don't understand what it's going to be like when the algorithms that we've built are overly influenced by bad data. It's nothing that we did. It's our adversary is giving us bad, inaccurate demonstration that we're sensing and it's throwing all of our algorithms off. So, modeling and simulation is so important.
2: You know, these similarities between what's going on with EMS strategy and implementation, AI, ML, data. What does this say about our approach to technology policy from a defense perspective, but I think even from a broader national security perspective? Do we have a technology strategy? We've talked about three different areas of technology here that we've either fallen behind in or they're cross-cutting and we feel like we don't have ownership for and we're scrambling to advance them. Where where does that
3: leave us? So my reaction to that, a friend of mine has an example of self-driving cars, right? When everybody has a self-driving car, it's going to work great. The problem is that intermediary time. And so that's what I see right now with the Department of Defense. There are some very smart people that understand what we're talking about. And then there's some people that don't really. So we're in kind of that intermediary time of understanding. When we push through and we have a new joint force that has this understanding, that's when we're going to be really lethal and, uh, and really capable. That's the struggle I think we have right now is that we're just in the intermediary time and we're pushing through.
0: I would add when you talked about algorithmic warfare, when everyone has a self-driving car, chances are we'll never get to that point. And then you can draw that comparison to DOD. We'll never really actually get there because I think a lot of times, you know, your algorithm is only as good as the next human it comes in contact with, whether it's the person sending the data, interpreting the data, sending it, doing something along in that loop. But I will say, you know, with that, I think the biggest thing, and talk with Michael Madrid about this, is this idea of accepting risk. We have to accept more risk along the development of a system, and for that risk acceptance to become contagious. Right now, bureaucracy does not like risk. It actively fights against risk. It is designed to make sure everything stays in one place. And so when you have pockets of great examples of where risk was taken and it produced something, but bureaucracy will work to contain that so it doesn't spread into other programs, other agents, other sectors of DOD. So figuring out what structural change we need to make to accept more risk and allow it to become contagious.
5: I would say, Courtney, to your question, that is the question. And I think our victory or defeat will largely rest on the answer we come up with that in terms of our technology policy. As I've evaluated this and pondered this for the last several years, I've come to the conclusion, we have plenty of money as a nation. You know, We're not broke, far from it. We have extraordinary intellectual talent and the capacity to innovate. What we don't have necessarily is time. The change is not linear. And our biggest vulnerability, I believe, as a society, as a nation, and specifically within the defense space, although it's not exclusive to this, is the process that we put on our pathway to get to something better. Speed of innovation, that's victory or defeat. We have got to adapt faster than anybody else. And we are not going to do that with 5,000 series and... J-CIDS. Okay. What got us here will not get us there. I was a little concerned about this when I started on the Hill. I am terrified about this now. We have to recognize as an open and free society, we have limitations. You know, China does not have an appropriations or an authorization process. They don't have committees of jurisdiction. They don't have JSIDS. There's a lot of things that they can afford not to have, which allows them to move very fast. We have those things, but we also have self imposed, other self imposed things that we need to rethink. And I think that has been the head scratcher. That's what people are digging into is how can we run this process better to get it? And everybody wants to do it, but we haven't figured out what that recipe looks like. And then what is that combination of changes to regulations versus changes to statute that need to happen? And industry is no different. Now, one thing though, industry has kind of figured this out in a way. You know, hedge fund traders go to war every day at a scope and scale and a speed that the DOD can't even begin to imagine. And they do that because their survival depends on it. And that is powered by an industry that knows how to do this. For so long, we have worked overtime to evict industry and those cultures and those ways of doing things from the defense space. Long answer, but that's...
2: Couldn't have asked for better closing remarks. So you all are very fortunate. Anytime we end on a good old-fashioned critique of the 5000 series, I'm happy. So... (laughs) but let's, let's go ahead and do uh, some audience questions here. We've got about 10 minutes, but love to get some some other voices in the room.
6: Thank you
5: very much. I love those closing remarks. That was fantastic. Now, as an entrepreneur, how do we actually get uh, Inspire Change here or get further, right? I think uh, it's great that eventually we'll get to that point. But to your, to your other point, like we're not there yet. We still have a lot of challenges to overcome. I highly doubt that the, the U.S. government is going to start overcoming their risk challenge, right? Having pitched to investors in my life before, I promise you, very few people overcome that risk. They want to see more reward first. And, right? and Congress can be candidly really tricky to navigate for a small startup with 11 people, right? So how would you guys say, like, if we say, say we had a solution already for EMS, already for this, that can protect us like 100%, how would that company even start going through those channels to get success? Let me just start. I would say, hey, it's not us. It's the other guys. Everybody's going to say that, right? <laughs> the money's there. And you will find many members and, and members of staff who say, look, the authorities have been provided. They exist. They're there. They're just not being used. There's a little bit of a circular argument on that one. But I think the belief is currently on the Hill is that, look, we have done what you asked us to do. You got to deliver something out of it. Um, But thinking big is less important than doing big things. You got to deliver, you got to produce, you know, and, and that's where, you know, this valley of death dynamic becomes a challenge, but you can't do it on your own. And I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at, you know, the uniforms or if you will, in the department of pulling stuff across.
3: It's not probably reasonable to transform the entire department of defense to an agile force. I don't know if that's going to happen and it probably wouldn't be prudent. But I think that we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves because there are there is some very positive signs. Places like AFWorks, CyberWorks, SoftWorks, those innovation centers that are looking for uh, game changing innovation, and they're, they're uh, bringing in those companies to look at what their uh, bright ideas are, and then they're funding them to, to develop prototypes. Uh, the Department of Defense. We've uh, started, you know, agile development is is the is is really getting embraced. DevSecOps, all these things are all very good. And so, uh, so we we need to kind of give ourselves some grace um, that it's not as bad as uh, we're making it sound. Uh, there are some places of innovation, and maybe that's the way. So maybe that's the counter to Pat uh, to your uh, thoughts is I don't know if we're ever going to have a completely agile force. I think it's important that we we uh, in, uh, incentivize and promote those pockets of innovation where we can be, take risk and then really find that leap ahead technology. And then we can bring it into production and, uh, and make sure that the whole force gets that capability.
0: I agree with you, Sharma. You, stepping out, like though, from just the DOD standpoint, I think that's one, one of the reasons why we're here tonight is by engaging innovators from an academic perspective, association perspective, congressional perspective, we can start to really learn your experience, okay, you're bumping up against something, this company's bumping up against something, and we can start to then to aggregate that a little bit better and figure out that maybe maybe the streamlined solution instead of you know, talking like these fantastic changes of plans that need to happen at the top. Um, because I think it's important that, you know, it's, it's not just about getting in there. It's also about staying in there too, and being able to you know you can always pitch your solution you can get that one product but that doesn't necessarily spread to like all of a sudden now you are looked to as a solution across other other areas so getting in there staying in there and then but just engaging people, you know associations and groups like us where we can start to aggregate those problems and then we can present it and we can have these conversations
7: yeah. hi my name's Trish uh, my day job is deputy director of collaboration at the national security innovation network oh. Uh, we are part of a three-link chain between DIU, the National Capital Innovation Program, and the National Security Innovation uh, Network. So we are here for you, uh, connected to the Pentagon, so maybe it doesn't totally you know, hit it. But I would say one thing, uh, 5,000 series, yes, I'm a total dork on that. When we swallowed Enclosure 13 and we swallowed that rapid kind of capability and solution development, we lost a very critical tool, bring it back as number one. So please just make that happen. And number two, since I am talking a little bit about DIU, um, Mike Brown is not uh, going to move into the acquisition top jobs. So who are the names that are at the top of your short lists?
5: I'm not certain I'm going to touch that one, but <laughs> I, w- I would say though, that did kind of, go off like a bomb last night when the word came out and you know, right or wrong. A lot of folks were had, had were banking a lot. It's a big job. It's an important job. It's kind of the job that in r right now is what we're talking about. And, uh, there's a sense of, of loss. Now, having said that though, our bench is immense, very deep in America. So there will be somebody, but it's also a process. Uh, so I don't have any names to give you, but I would just say that, um, we got to get one fast. Um, Back to my argument about you know being short on time. I'll, I'll touch that briefly.
2: I think I think there's an enormous amount of conversation that goes into the ans pick and for good reason, right? As the top weapons buyer, right? I think there is less conversation without good reason that goes into the R&E pick. Um, and I think if you look back at why Congress actually separated ATL to begin with, it was to elevate. The technology strategy of the Department of Defense and to have one entity that owned and drove that strategy based on the critical challenges that we need to solve as a military. And that that hasn't really happened, right, for a variety of reasons, placing it on no one's shoulders, right, structural reasons as well. But I think, you know, where where there is opportunity in the coming years is for r to really step into that role. And so I think, you know, I, I will admit I'm a former staff member of the National Security Commission on AI. So we've put out a number of recommendations in that area. Um, but I think that's a bright spot, is that over the next few years, hopefully we will see a return to collaboration between these two entities that, if done correctly, bridges that valley of death and provides more innovative solutions that can get companies to scale faster in the department as well.
6: Thank you. Uh, this is an awesome panel, by the way. I I appreciate the opportunity to sponsor and actually take this conversation in. For you, um, I, I'm actually sitting in r e right now um, in the Electronic Warfare and Countermeasures Office. Our job, to include what Dan's job is, is to find innovative technologies that actually work on the EMS and bring us back to superiority. So I'll give you my card <laughs> so you can reach out to me tomorrow because like, we, we're doing another R&E um, innovation sort of working group thing where we have guys come in and pitch and those things turn into unfunded requirements that we push forward and get funded and we test it out. So I look forward to talking to you. All right. So my question to the panel, I was really intrigued by the, the, the points you guys made about the parallel between things and data. Uh, things like, uh, I, I'm an old NSA guy as well. So there was a big fight between what was OSS-7 Versus what is now DNI, and then that term convergence came into to being, and everybody was like, "Oh, you know, a cell phone is everything. It's computer to computer communications. It's it's a cell phone. It, it talks to the geospatial and the and the cell phone network. So it's it's everything." Also, I was back at NSA back in the '90s when we broke VoIP and started doing data network exploitation. So. I've been able to see uh, on the course uh, OEF, OIF, uh, personal communication devices, and how do we break those encryptions and do cool things in the field, right? So at each of those innovation sort of, uh, I guess, explosions or, or crossroads, however you want to call it, there were two things that I noticed that happened in those to kind of push those forward that isn't happening in the EMS right now. And that's the two dirty words, the GMP, which is governance and policy change. Somebody has to really own it. And 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 I bring that up because someone touted AI, for example. I just sat on a an AI working group about electronic warfare and 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 cyber today, this morning. And I brought up the point, like, okay, so who is responsible for this? The the, the topic of bad code and and, and that actually came up this morning. And I, I turned to the Jake rep and said, so is this a job for the Jake, the joint AI center? And they were like, uh, I'm not a three star, so I'm not sure. It, 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 that can't really happen. But with regards to significant changes and, and I guess uh, tactical communications or personal communication changes and data changes, we actually looked at policy and someone kind of stepped up to own it. So, so my question to you guys like as far as EMS goes, we have this stovepipe service structure with regards to what's happening. Dan and I work on a tool that's awesome. We think the framework supports everything from I&W out to EMS enhanced situational awareness, weapons target parent and co-generate it's, it's freaking awesome, right? But when we go pitch this thing, the Navy wants to do something different with it. The Army wants to do something different with it. The Air Force only wants this piece because really I just want it to fit into EMBM, you know, or or even Jazz C2, as you guys mentioned. But there is no authority. And you know, it it depends on where you go who th- thinks that they're they're the authority in, in EW. So what do you guys feel about that governance piece? Like who who should actually own this thing? So there is actually a centralized place to say innovations in service and fielding out like that. That just can't happen because just theoretically it doesn't exist. Semantically, there is no there's no tie.
3: Yeah. Thaddeus, I can't agree with you more. I mean, you 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 put a bow on it pretty much the success of the strategy. We have a great strategy, the 2020 DoD Electromagnetic Spectrum Strategy. Superiority strategy. Uh, now you know. Now we have an implementation plan uh, that's about to be signed, and that, that I, th- I believe that the success of that I plan will det- will really hang. It depends on if there's a empowered official that is going to hold people accountable for what's requ- required of them. That's what the I plan is. It's a list of tasks that need to be accomplished in order to achieve the strategy. And if we don't have an empowered official that's willing to go and sit at the table with all the other seniors that's a high enough rank and say, "Why aren't you doing this?" It's impacting our our capabilities, our uh, our ability to uh, maintain uh, superiority. But until we have that person that can look eye to eye across the table and ask those questions, I don't know if it will work. And uh, we got very lucky, I think, when we had uh, you know it was a perfect uh, situation when we had Congress wrote legislation telling the department to take this more seriously. And they said, name a senior designated official that's going to be responsible for this. And so it was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so I personally was in meetings with him and this deputy secretary of defense. And to have the vice chairman be able to kind of go toe to toe with whoever didn't understand or didn't believe or, or was resisting that's the only way we can really be successful, is because there's a senior official that's willing to say something and that's being held responsible for it. And so, I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I want to be a part of your uh, bandwagon. I, I, I believe it. I believe in everything you said, and I think that we just need to bring more awareness to how important this is, so that uh, it's almost like a, a no-brainer. You have to have an empowered official in order to a- accomplish the strategy.
0: And I would add an empowered official who. Whose job it really is to focus on that versus, you know, wearing numerous hats. Right. right that, that right. They have really, to be focused with no other
3: that. competing priorities. Because the minute you have other things in your portfolio, then you have to make a decision about, you know, am I going to do this today or am I going to do that today? No. This empowered official has to have this as the number one focus and it's the only focus.
0: We we've we've got had great leadership from the vice chair and and everything, but I think that if we're if it's going to take proper seat in the discussion. It's got to be an exclusive seat on M- EMS superiority. I'll just add, you know, with the governance is absolutely huge. I think that's one of the reasons why we've always we've, for years have had this domain discussion. It's not just because we enjoy sitting around in a circle and just like talking like, oh, it's a, you know, how does it compare to Air sea? Domains drive authorities, they drive resources. And this the strategy comes out, you know, maneuver space. I that's fine, but I don't think it's enough long-term because I think that in in my perspective, this is Ken Miller speaking, not AOC, it it really starts to drive this governance structure back to the services when you start talking it into maneuver. And it eventually it needs to be elevated. Now, I don't think it's necessarily, you're talking about a fundamental force of the universe. So I don't know if it even fits in a domain. I don't know what the answer is, but we have to we have to come up with a governance structure that has authorities and resources tied to it exclusively and not shared with Competing interests.
5: Hey, if my boss here was here, he'd give you a hug right now. I almost <laughs> gave you a hug. <laughs> so um, that's how this journey kind of started for for us. Was really back in the 18 legislation, uh, or you know, it's almost been three years, and it was focused on that. You, we can't expect success unless somebody's accountable for it. And I would say we made progress, good progress. It's not enough. This governance thing is not perfect, and I think there's a lot of unease. But what my boss would also say is, look, we have got to stop. You know, polishing the rock at this point, we got to move out, and we will. We need to adapt in stride. We're not giving it up now, but we got other stuff, and we'll figure it out as we go. But that accountability and that single focus is, is is fundamental to all of this. So, thank you for for bringing that up. But one last thing: the I plan. Is going to fall largely, I
0: think, on Congress, and Congress is going to have a huge job to make sure that the I plan stays on track. And so, yeah, and, to that. and the
5: way it's, we look at it is, it's that is our blueprint for oversight. And the strategy was nice; all strategies are great. Who doesn't like a strategy? No. They they say good things, but what's more important is the execution of the strategy, and what is that going to require? Those details, and that's what Congress—that's that Rosetta Stone that we're really going to be using to monitor this over time, and then identify where we need to adjust.
2: All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap it there. Let's give a huge round of applause to our fantastic panelists. Again, to the association and our sponsors for, for generously hosting us this evening. It's been fantastic.
0: That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Pacific Defense. Pacific Defense rapidly delivers military electromagnetic spectrum technology solutions to the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and their industry partners. Learn more at pacific-defense.com. To learn more about the Association of Old Crows and From the Crows Nest podcast, please visit us on our website at crows.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.